This week's nonprofit or charity picked by our guest is the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union. Evolved from a small group of idealists into the nation's premier defender of the rights enshrined in the Constitution, the ACLU has more than 1.5 million members, nearly 300 staff attorneys, thousands of volunteer attorneys, and offices throughout the nation. The ACLU continues to vigorously defend individual freedoms, including freedom of speech, freedom of religion, the right to due process, and much more. To learn more, visit ACLU.org. And now the episode. Welcome back to Screen People, or welcome if it's the first time you've ever listened to this. This is our fourth episode, and our guest this week is Tracy. May I call you Dr. Tracy? If you like. Dr. Tracy, if we were reading the back cover of your national bestseller, what would it say about you? Well, it would say that I was uh, born to parents who were married in the 1950s and never chose to leave that era, that I achieved bachelor's and master's degrees in philosophy, and then made a hard turn into the sciences and became a veterinarian. And I've been practicing veterinary medicine since 2002 and have been married for 14 years and have a lovely daughter. Why did you go to philosophy? I really enjoy the study of the history of knowledge. And for me, it wasn't ever buying into any one school of thought. It was more traveling a path down the different permutations and generations of how people who were thoughtful thought about the world and our place in it, and how that knowledge is cumulative. Okay, so we get a bachelor's degree in philosophy, then we continue it into a master's degree in philosophy. What was the goal? Um, I was originally going to go on and get a PhD and teach philosophy at the college level. Because I like to work hard, be displaced often, and not make any money. But then <laughs> I didn't get into the PhD program I wanted to get into, so I decided to go and become a veterinarian instead. That is a true story. I feel like there's at least one step missing in that story. I got my master's in philosophy with the hopes of being a doctor of philosophy. You know what? Veterinary school. Yeah, well, I mean, so I, I financed my graduate school education working with horses. And I had jobs working on farms and working with horses from the time I was a kid. So I was all this time I was working as a professional with horses. And I didn't get into the program I wanted to get into. And I was holding a horse one day in the aisle for the farrier. And he was nailing shoes on the horse. And we were talking. And I was like, I just don't know what I want to do. Like, you know, I like working with horses, but I want to be intellectually stimulated. And I just want something stable. And he was, he kind of looked up to me. He goes, are you a dummy? Just go to vet school. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll do that. And that's what I did. Let's talk about your childhood. Let's rip open the bandages. Let's undo what therapists have done. Oh, God. Um, or, or, let's talk about Star Wars. I mean, either or. Either or. Uh, it's your cho- doctor's choice. <laughs> my life is an open book, so whatever you want. Let me think. Um, what would my non-existent listeners want? They probably want me to talk about movies. Let's talk about 1977. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 1977, episode four, A New Hope. When I asked you about your childhood, this is what came up. Here's the interesting thing about this particular topic. I am going to provide no details 
about Star Wars A New Hope for several reasons. One, it's a cultural phenomenon into itself. Two, I will be destroyed by the few or non-existent people who listen to this if I were to get any details about Star Wars wrong. So, instead, we will do something that they can't argue with, which is look at it from the perspective of someone who was there. What was it like for you? What was New Hope? What was that whole thing for you? It was crazy. So it was the first movie that I was able to see in the theater that had that kind of impact, right? So like Rocky had been huge. I wasn't allowed to see that, right? So there are a lot of big movies at that time that I didn't have access to. So this was really special for me. And not to get into things too deeply, but I didn't have a lot of chances to go to the movies when I was a kid. My mom's agoraphobic and my dad traveled all the time with work, but for whatever reason, he was at home. And so he took me as a special treat. And it, it was just amazing because everybody was talking, you know, people talk about like water cooler discussion. And like at my elementary school, it was like water fountain discussion, right? Everybody was talking about not just the movie, but also like all all of the jackets and toys, because it was one of the first, I think, movies that really kind of went whole hog on all the stuff around it. And so people were talking about their Millennium Falcons and their fighters that they got at the store. And it was just, it was incredible. And it changed, I think, the way that people think about movies, because it was something for everybody to talk about. Everybody had an opinion about it, whether they liked it or not. And I think most people really did like it because it was so different and so new. That's wild. <laughs> Sorry. That was my great commentary. That's wild. <laughs> There's nothing to add to that. That was great. Did you only see it once? Well, originally, I only saw it once in the theater. I mean, I was eight at the time, so it's not like I had a lot of control <laughs> over whether or not I got to see it again. Of course, I've seen it several times since then, and I actually watched it recently with my daughter because we've been going back and watching some older movies, and I was actually struck by how really good the special effects are. Like, I really thought that in retrospect that they would look really clunky, but they don't, you know? They still look pretty darn good, even though they were done with much more primitive technology compared to what we have now and so I've seen it several times since it was interesting watching it with her kind of seeing it through her eyes and the other thing that I thought was interesting is that it still feels fresh in terms of the role of Princess Leia in the story she has way more agency than I think women do even in movies today which I was a little bit surprised about because when I watched The Princess Bride this is tangential with my daughter I was so excited to share that with her there's so many great lines from that movie and great wonderful performances and there's so many funny kind of in jokes and I was just so excited to share that with her and we got about halfway through the movie and she looked at me and she's like doesn't Buttercup ever actually do anything and I was like yeah she's pretty passive you know but Star Wars is not that way Star Wars still plays like hey there's a woman who's taking charge of her own life and being responsible for her own well-being and is as brave if not braver than the men who are around her which is pretty cool yeah she's never um i don't think at any point is she uh the word submissive does not come to mind right um nope. she's even imprisoned because she's like i'm not gonna tell you squat put me in prison yeah and then she quickly grabs a blaster and starts shooting as well like there is nothing passive about princess leia yeah it, it is pretty interesting and that is a good parallel because you're right princess bride is amazing but the role of women in princess bride not as great 
explain your parallels between Star Wars and Harry Potter? Because that was interesting to me, but I didn't want to even remotely try to break that down. Well, it, it's a little bit weird, right? When you start noticing the parallels. So there are three main characters. You know, the one male character is kind of the chosen one who's going to change everything for everybody. Then he's got his kind of goofy sidekick best friend who's kind of provides some comic relief, but is very almost grudgingly loyal. And then there's the woman or the female character who's the smartest one in the room and you know, thinks them out of all of their problems. She and the sidekick end up together. The bad guy is the guy who, you know, in Star Wars literally creates Luke as his father, but in Harry Potter, Voldemort creates Harry as the chosen one by trying to kill him and having it fail. And both of them, both villains, start out as gifted students who take a turn for darkness. Yes. And when they take that turn to darkness, they become physically disfigured as well as emotionally disfigured. They have great power, but because they don't use that power for good, they find themselves surrounded by people who are sycophants and not truly loyal, which is hard to get things done when you do things that way. You know, it always seems like an insurmountable, like the barriers always seem insurmountable to the heroes, but they are clever and collaborative and they work together and they work together with unexpected allies. And, you know, I don't know, just there's a lot of... It's fantasy, but they're fantasies from different positions, but they sort of tell the same fable that if you have love and friendship and goodness in your life, that you'll be able to overcome obstacles that you can't through ambition and power alone. If I had the ability to play a sound cue while we were talking, there would be an 80s theme at this moment. While I said, I had a job, I had a car, I watched all the movies. This was you. In the 80s, is this correct? Yeah. Because you went from not watching movies, and then you hit adolescence, you had a car, you had a license, you could go. Yes, that was the beginning of my, my junkie, my movie junkie existence. Do you remember the first thing you went to go see? Well, the first R-rated movie I went to see was Beverly Hills Cop. And I went to see that. I lied to my parents and told them I was going to see Romancing the Stone, which I then did also see. Top Gun. 1986, inspired by an article called Top Guns about these fighter pilots. It won the Academy Award for Best Song. It was actually the highest grossing film of 1986. Another huge cultural phenomenon. And how many people started playing beach volleyball after that movie? (laughs) You wrote something that I thought was fascinating. You said that Top Gun was your first movie that the younger version of you and adult version of you collided. Yeah, so when I first saw Top Gun in the theater, extra loud, I was, yeah, so I was 16, 17. I was like one big giant walking hormone. And I was like those guys with the short haircut, flying really fast and singing to girls in bars. In 1986, to me, that just seemed like cool and charming and everything went fast and there were motorcycles and airplanes and it was amazing. And I really liked it. And I'm almost like ashamed to admit this because my aesthetic (laughs) has shifted (laughs) quite so far. But I bought the poster, right? (laughs) Like, I bought the poster. Went to college, had the poster on my wall. But then... 
during my freshman year, right? So like maybe a year later, maybe a year and a half later, I was hanging out with a friend of mine, smoking some weed and we had nothing to do. And he was like, let's watch a movie. I got Top Gun. I was like, yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. I love Top Gun. Top Gun's a great movie. Let's watch that. So we're like, you know, have our cooler beer sitting in his living room and we're watching Top Gun and we're both a little bit high. And all of a sudden I start noticing things. I start noticing that the acting is really terrible, like really stiff and like they're reading cue cards terrible. And then like I started listening to the dialogue and realized that no people alive actually talk like that. I, I didn't make it past beach volleyball. I was like, I'm sorry, we have to turn it off. We're going to sit in silence. I don't care. I can't. It was actually physically painful for me to watch the movie at that point. And I was like disappointed in the movie. I was disappointed in myself for liking it. I went in my room and took down my poster. <laughs> It was, it was like, it was one of the most <laughs> memorable moments. You right then? Yeah, I you did. just ripped it off just the wall. Right down. Like, no, I'm better than this. I just, it was, and it was, it's one of the, my most vivid memories of college. And then you put up like a poster of the feminine mystique or. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Nietzsche probably. <laughs> the sexiest of philosophers. What a bad boyfriend he would have been. Oh, yeah. All right. Moving on. This movie that I will admit I have never watched. I have a podcast about movies and television, and I have not watched one of the top 20 films of all time, Dr. Zhivago. 1965, uh, you discovered it in your teens, and you still love it, unlike Top Gun. It was directed by David Lean, who was uh, had just come off of directing Lawrence of Arabia a couple of years prior. I think it was 1962. Apparently, MGM was looking to do their follow-up to Gone with the Wind based on the novel by Boris Pasternak. Correct. Russia before World War One and the Russian Civil War of 1918 to 1922 for anybody who doesn't know that. I didn't know any of this. The Russian Revolution, abolition of the monarchy in 1917. And in the middle of that, we have a love story. Why is this movie so special to you? We could talk for an hour or two just about that. One of the things is that it was one of the first movies that I ever sort of started feeling geeky about the process. You know, I watched a making of and talked about like David Lean's process and his art staff and how they would like individually hand paint the leaves on the trees and the attention to detail and the costuming and the hairstyles and all of those things. So that was like part of that, because after that, every time I watch a movie now, it seems like I want to know how that sausage is made. I want to like dig into that. The biggest thing about Dr. Zhivago, and it is, by the way, one of my two or three movies that I think is better than the book upon which it is based, is that, you know, yes, it's a historical novel, it's a historical fiction, deals with a really interesting period of time, but the character development in this movie is, I think, richer than pretty much any movie that I've seen. Even the really tiny characters, like, so Dr. Zhivago, obviously, he's a medical doctor and he's a poet. That's um, Omar Sharif's role. He apprentices for a while with an older doctor, and it's a tiny little role, but it's just a diamond. You know, like you have a couple scenes with this doctor who was a friend of the family, and you, you see him minister to someone, and you just instantly know in the way he talks to and about his patient, like what kind of a person he is, and, and his perspective, and what he's been through. And it's just incredible how with these little tiny details, you can really kind of understand the motivations of these characters. 
And then, so, you know, you've got the love story, which is my favorite sort of love story. In other words, everyone suffers, right? <laughs> like it's, I don't like, you know, happy, I, I'm not a Hallmark Channel kind of girl, right? So it's like a tragic love story. This man's in love with two women and none of it ends well. Everyone makes bad decisions. Russia ends up in a war. Oh yeah, there's like war on every side. There's war from within. There's war with the Germans. And you get a little bit of history, right? And it's actually, there's a voiceover during parts of the movie by Sir Alec Guinness also from Star Wars, and he's just amazing, right? So he's he's a voice of reason. And then the villain in the movie, who is a man named Victor Komarovsky, and he's played by Rod Steiger in an absolutely tour de force performance. He's a terrible person. He murdered Zhivago's father. He's a rapist. He's an exploiter. He's the worst kind of capitalist. But in the end, he's the one who saves their lives. There's this great scene, like two thirds of the way through the movie, where he's drunk and he's trying to get them to leave Moscow and he's trying to get them to come with him so that they'll be safe and they can leave the country and go to France and you know they're basically like no you know our ideals don't let us do that we're not gonna let you help us because you're this terrible person and he kind of falls down the stairs and he just has this great monologue where he just screams at them that he's like you're clay that's all that you are you think you're special that you're not and he just like has this whole thing and it's at the time like the first time I watched it I was like oh he's just so awful but he's speaking the truth. You know, they're lost in this fantasy of what they think life might be. But he actually understands what's happening in the country. And so, like, he's the worst. But in a way, he's their savior. And then, on top of all of that, everything gets tied up at the end with this nice kind of circular end to the story, which is kind of great. And then the soundtrack is breathtakingly beautiful it's a full orchestra soundtrack and it is absolute even the, there's an intermission because it's such a long movie yeah isn't it over like three hours is that right yeah it's like three and a half hours the intermission has its own soundtrack which is just amazing you know there's like russian military music and balalaika music the score is just gorgeous and if anything with time i like it better when I asked you about what you watch now, your range of watching, Dr. Tracy said, entertainment that challenges the narrow experience of the world, my narrow experience of the world. And then you suggest things like yeah. Call Me By Your Name from 2017, 13th, a documentary, The Intersection of Race, Justice, and Imprisonment in the United States, Create British Baking in Downton Abbey, Ford vs. Ferrari, Born Movies, Superbad, Knives Out. Did we miss any category? <laughs> Romantic comedy. And let's go there. Oh! Catherine Heigl may be listening to my podcast. Dr. Tracy, in reference to your disdain for romantic comedies, I just have one question. Why the disdain? <laughs> there, well, so part of it is that they're supposed to be, I think, cute and make people feel good. But I get really ticked off because... Most romantic comedies deal with kind of a schlubby guy and a hot woman. I, I just get irritated because it's like the expectation that is projected through there, like all romantic comedies, in my opinion, and I'm sorry, I'm just going to get, I'm just, this is not going to be funny. The romantic comedy 
typecasts every female character in the way the patriarchy wants to see her. And it just chaps my bottom. Like, even, like, so there was a little movie back in the 90s, I want to say, with Janine Garofalo and Uma Thurman called The Truth About Cats and Dogs. Yes, I remember it. And the whole premise of the movie was Janine Garofalo could not get with this guy she thought was interesting. Right? She's a veterinarian with her own radio show. She can't get with this guy because he only likes hot women. And so Uma Thurman pretends to be her so that they can have phone sex later. That's a bad way of summarizing that movie. (laughs) Yes, it's terrible. I believe uh, critics might have referred to it as a reverse Roxanne, but go on. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, just kind of like I've always been the short brainy chick and not the hot chick. And it just always chafes me that like there's never a movie about this super hot guy who's obsessed with like a short pudgy brainy chick maybe i'd like to see that i don't know and the other thing is that it's just totally unrealistic like once the hard work starts that's the end of the movie in 2016 a novel by ian mcguire called a north water which you mentioned as something you would love to see turned into a uh, film i read i saw a review that referred to it as subtle as a harpoon in the head but totally gripping why why north water it was a pretty dark book, but in that, there's a lot of really cool action. There's um, excellent character development. I don't know. I guess I like historical fiction type movies. It kind of takes the Moby Dick story and turns it on his head because it's really not, you know, they're they're wailing. These guys are wailing. But as it, it turns out in the end that there, this whole expedition is all a farce to basically cheat the insurance company and collect the insurance money because the whaling company's going under because people are no longer using whale oil to light their lamps and things like that. And in the midst of it is this doctor who has a heroin problem from when he was in the war in India and all these different things. I don't know, it's a very kind of Game of Thronesy, actually. You know, kind of a lot of the storylines is sort of gruesome, but at the same time, there's a lot of dark humor in it. Again, it would be sort of one of those epic scales, like beautiful, harsh landscapes. There's a lot of struggle, and there are many instances in the novel where assumptions get challenged in a very revelatory way. You know, a lot of those types of things. And then, you know, in the end, nature pretty much gets all of them, which is an ending that is satisfactory to me. <laughs> well, you know, they were cheats and they were out there to kill whales, which is not nice. So they, they got right. what was coming to them. Well, I was very excited when I was looking up information about the North Water mm-hmm. because I have news. It's actually being adapted by the BBC. Colin Firth is actually the lead in it. Stop it. Ah, I hate to break your heart. Feral. No! Not Firth. I hate that guy. I know. Well, you know what? He's going to fit perfectly in this in this movie about people who are terrible. Yeah, he could be a terrible guy. Um, it's a four-part miniseries that was filming at the end of 2019. Oops. I promise you the pictures look very depressing. You're in for a good time. <laughs> like, everyone looks horrible. Everyone looks sad. Bearded and sad. They should. All right, last question. Not ending it on the uh, horrible people who die wailing. We're in July 
the staged version of Hamilton has come out in film form, and we've all consumed it on Disney+. Plus. This is not a plug for Disney+, Plus, but I'm always looking for sponsors, so go ahead, Disney+, Plus, sponsor me. So, you mentioned something that was not uncommon. Um, my wife continues to say that it is her one problem with Hamilton, which is the role of women. Now, I'm a huge fan of Lin-Manuel. I love In the Heights, which was his first huge musical, which is also going to be a movie, or is a movie. And I love Hamilton. But even watching it, I couldn't help but recognize the limited role that women play in this. So when I asked you, what would you like to see? You said women of historical moments. Tell me about that. Well, it is interesting, isn't it, that in the telling of our history, there's a lot of really compelling, really awesome stories that we hear about all these things that happened and you know how this country was founded and from the colonies to frontier land. And, you know, who do we see in all of these stories, right? We hear about Paul Revere. We hear about George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. And we know that all these people had wives and daughters and neighbors who were female. And the portrayal is always, well, that woman's at home raising the children and she's supporting that man while he does important work. But as it turns out, if you really read some of these biographies of some of these quote-unquote great men, which we can debate, the women actually played a much more active role in a lot of these events than anybody ever bothers to put out there. You know, Eliza Hamilton actually edited a lot of Alexander Hamilton's papers, and she was key in writing Washington's farewell address. And she did a lot of stuff after he died in terms of founding orphanages and improving health care for people and doing a lot of real work. And we never hear those stories. You know, the closest that I've come with any of these, like, historical movies has been the miniseries that was done about John Adams, where Laura Linney actually gets some really meaty stuff to portray. And you realize, like, there's a lot going on that's not happening, you know, in a room full of guys in wigs, you know? Like, there was a lot of living happening. And a lot of that was very exciting, you know? And I just would love to see that and, you know, see the active role that women played in the revolution and the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement and beyond, because we always hear it from the same perspective, is the men that were, you know, to borrow from Hamilton, right, in the room where it happened. And, you know, Hamilton kind of skates that a little bit. They know that there should have been things that were more inclusive of women. And in many ways, Eliza Hamilton is the voice that kind of gives humanity to the whole story. and uh, But I just would love to see, um, and I'm forgetting the woman's name, Sylvia Luddington, I think it was, who was one of the riders who, you know, she was 16 years old. She ran into several battalions of British troops or, you know, redcoat troops and managed to escape and still warn people that the invasion was happening. And you know, we don't hear about her. We hear about the guy who is a silversmith. I think we need more, and not just historical stories, but I think we need more movies about women doing something other than you know, supporting the guy who's doing stuff who's in, that's important. I mean, I loved Ford versus Ferrari and, you know, movies with people driving fast are cool, but why don't we have a movie about a woman who's a gun runner or a woman who's in prohibition running alcohol or like, why not? Because you know that happened. 
they made a thousand movies about pirates. Where the hell is the uh, women who were pirates who were very famous? Yeah. You know, there was those two who died in battle who just mm-hmm. went, you're, you're going to have to kill us. That story is amazing. Or is yeah. that story? You think I know the names of that, but I didn't because I just thought of it. Okay. I, I said last question, but I like to lie in my podcast. <laughs> um, what would you like your daughter to watch? Because I know entertainment takes a different speaking of like older movies and things like that when you start seeing it through the lens of a child or a young creature and the messages and the images you want them to see what would you like her to see um i like her to see things that challenge her assumptions about the world and the people in it in a way that's thoughtful like not challenge like you're wrong, but challenge like, oh, maybe I should think about this a little bit different, or I didn't realize that this was this way, you know, to open her mind up and her experience up to other cultures and different ways of thinking about things. I like her to watch content that empowers her as a human, that doesn't focus on what we might expect of her as a girl, but what is possible for her as a person. And also things that make her think about, because she also likes to understand how the movies are made. She also loves those featurettes. And I want her to be able to look at a movie and see something that's cool or engaging or really beautiful aesthetic or a beautiful score and think, how did they do that? And how might I be involved in creating something Fantastic Mr. Fox is a great example. She loves the movie because it's a great story, but she also loves the movie because it's so obviously created and it has challenged her to think about in what way she can create things. And I really love that. Well, thank you so much for doing this. No, thank you for asking me. I hope it wasn't too lame. I don't think it was lame. And if they think it was lame, well, I could just listen to something else. I don't care. Demi Moore is coming out with an erotic podcast for some reason. Gross. You can go listen to that. No, no, please don't. Don't listen to that. Listen to me. <laughs> Come back. It's true. She's working on it. It's like a fiction erotic podcast. Look at that. I'm, pl- I'm accidentally plugging Demi Moore. Like, she needs my help. She does not need your help. She does not. <laughs>